This show is made possible by NCSEA's members. And if you'd like to become a member of North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, visit us online at energync.org. Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. We've got a great episode lined up for you. I'm sitting down with one of North Carolina's leading voices on equity and justice within clean energy, Jackie Ayala from the North Carolina Justice Center. We'll be talking energy burdens, diversity in clean energy, and an equitable transition to clean energy. But first, let's start with our policy update. Since the crossover deadline on May 9th, the last two weeks have been relatively light in the General Assembly, with clean energy legislation not seeing any movement. However, some behind-the-scenes developments have taken shape that are indicators of what we should expect in the coming weeks. Here are the key takeaways that you need to know. Senate Bill 559, aka Securitization and Multi-Year Rate Plans, passed the Senate and was referred to the House Finance Committee which indicates to us that only the first piece of the bill, securitization, will be discussed, since it's the only provision relating to finance. Remember, securitization is a handy mechanism that allows utilities to recoup capital on uneconomic assets by issuing ratepayer-backed bonds on the open market. We really don't have a problem with securitization. In fact, it could be used in the future to decommission coal plants. But it's part two of the legislation, multi-year rate plans, that are the problem. These are the same multi-year rate plans that allowed the utility to over-earn more than a billion dollars in Virginia, so NCSEA is working behind the scenes to avoid this costly mistake. Want to get down in the weeds with Senate Bill 559? Go check out our last podcast, featuring NCSEA's General Counsel, Peter Ledford. Senate Bill 377, Senator Harry Brown's wind ban, did not make crossover, but in a divided vote, the North Carolina Military Affairs Commission passed a resolution in support of the wind ban. What this resolution fails to recognize is the stringent review process that the Department of Defense already has in place. Chairman Representative Greer Martin stressed that this resolution passed on a divided vote, which is really unusual for this commission that typically passes resolutions unanimously. This proposal would ban all new wind projects in either wholly or in part 66 North Carolina counties. Keep in mind that the Amazon wind farm is the highest taxpayer in both Pasquotank and Perquimans counties. Here's what retired Lieutenant General John Castellaw had to say about the DOD review process. The Department of Defense Siting Clearinghouse was established by the National Defense Act in 2011 to have a mechanism for those uh, businesses or organizations that want to establish wind farms or transmission lines or anything that has structures above 199 feet to get reviewed by the Department of Defense by the services that are impacted so that it doesn't impact with the safety or the ability to train in those areas. 
The siting clearinghouse is looking at, okay, where is the hazard located? They've reviewed several hundred, in fact, into the thousands of projects. Some have been rejected. In other legislative news, the pro-clean energy legislation that we've been working on, including House Bills 329, the EV charging bill that allows the retail resale of electricity to EV drivers, House Bill 330, which increases energy reduction goals in state buildings from 30 to 40 percent, and House Bill 331, which guarantees small hydroelectric producers capacity payments, have not seen any movement. But after the Senate budget is rolled out next week, we should have a better picture about a path forward for NCSEA's legislative agenda. To see our full weekly policy update, you can become an NCSEA business member by visiting us online at energync.org. guests today joined the North Carolina Justice Center in 2016 as the Energy Campaign and Outreach Coordinator with the Consumer and Housing Project. Prior to joining the Justice Center, she worked as an organizer with the Sierra Club on a variety of issues including coal ash, solar, and the Clean Power Plan. Her background is in youth and student organizing, and she worked as a statewide organizer for Florida youth on climate change before moving to North Carolina. Her interests are in intersectional organizing and justice-centered policy work. And we are so excited to have her on the pod today. Friends of the pod, let's give a warm welcome to today's guest, Jackie Ayala. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are so excited to have you. You are the first official guest on the pod, so we are so happy to have you here. So honored. Jackie, do you want to go ahead and describe, how would you describe (laughs) where we are right now to the listeners at home? We are in a fort. We are in a fort. We are in a literal blanket fort. Yes. Uh, it feels great. I feel very safe. Good. Like, and at home in this, like, slightly darkened place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> feels great. So, so we, don't have a, we don't have an official, well, we do have an official studio here at NCSEA, but our official studio consists of a tablecloth that is resting over a lampshade and a presentation stand and our mics are on a stepladder and we are under the tablecloth so that's our studio for today what are these these Uh, look like extra like trampoline slash maybe some kind of weird exercise (laughs) thing like i don't know what this is yes this is our this is NCSEA's exercise equipment that we never (laughs) use no i'm just kidding this is a uh, it's one of those chairs that you sink into Oh, they they might they might be a little more fashionable than functional. Gotcha. (laughs) Jackie, can you tell us what an energy burden is? Yes. Essentially, the energy burden speaks to the proportion of your income that goes towards energy bills. So if the proportion of your income that goes towards energy bills is 6% or more, you are considered energy burdened. Got you. Mm -hmm. Who experiences the highest energy burdens? 
We say 6% or more is considered energy burden, but truly the people who are the most energy burdened or who are experiencing really extreme energy burden are lower than 100% of the poverty level. So for example, someone between 50 to 100% of the poverty level, the burden is often around 13 to 18%. Mm-hmm. And I can give you an example from Cabarrus County, a real family from Cabarrus County, a married couple with three children. They're both age 55. They have a home, they're homeowners and they have a mortgage. Their annual income is $24,000. So first, imagine raising three kids on $24,000. It's it's bonkers. And then their total energy burden is 17.68%. Their electric bill is $3,000 a year and their gas bill is $1,200 a year. It's just too much for that family. What's the difference between equity and equality? It's a great question. Um, Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you for asking it. (laughs) Equity recognizes that a level playing field doesn't exist. So because of the historic discrimination, historic racialized policy, some groups, particularly around racial lines, they're starting from a place of historic disadvantage. So when we talk about equality, we talk about providing the same supports for everybody. When we talk about equity, what we're saying is that we need to provide different supports because we're recognizing that not everybody is starting from the same place. So we're recognizing that historic disadvantage and that those people, in order to play fairly or play on that level playing field that we like to talk about, we have to offer them different, sometimes stronger supports. When we do that, we increase access. We're addressing those systemic barriers that exist for those groups. And that's how we truly achieve fairness, not through giving those same supports for everybody, but offering different supports and recognizing those systemic barriers in the first place. Can you give me an example of equity versus equality within the conversation of clean energy or energy burdens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we think about equality, we're thinking about low rates across the board and everybody in the residential class gets lower electricity rates the same low electricity rate. But when we're talking about equity, we're recognizing that there's a historic barrier that means that some people, specifically people with low incomes, still face a disproportionate burden, even though that rate is supposedly low or that your bills are low across the board. So when we think about equity, that's where something like a percentage of income payment program comes in because it caps the amount of money going towards energy bills for that low-income group. So they're not going to be disproportionately burdened just because they're poor. Why should we be talking about the energy burden as opposed to high electricity bills? How do you distinguish those two things? You can have a high electricity bill if you are a wealthier person. If you are a family that is well-off, You might be powering more electronics. You might have a bigger home. So your electricity bill is going to be high. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean that you're energy burdened. Energy burden speaks to a disproportionate amount of your income going towards energy bills. Often the average amount for a person with middle income or high income has about 2.3% of their income going towards energy bills, whereas a low income individual or family is seeing almost three times that, which is about 7.5% of their income going towards energy bills. Mm -hmm. Weatherization and energy efficiency work and home repair services are so, so key to this problem. A lot of times, low-income people are living in old housing. 
often it gets into such a state that you're wasting money heating and cooling a home that isn't efficient. It's not tight, so there's lots of waste happening in terms of the building envelope. And then you may be living with a broken HVAC or you may have worse things like having a hole in your roof or having uh, other types of things that are not related to efficiency per se. If you're living with this disability and you don't have anybody to help you make adjustments to your home, mm-hmm. I heard a story of a gentleman who couldn't get in and out of his bathroom for years until someone in a home repair nonprofit went in and helped him out. So this piece about how energy efficiency and clean energy intersect with these other issues like housing, that is one of the most important pieces of this work. You can't just go in only thinking about energy efficiency. You have to think about the whole problem, right? The, the systemic barriers that are in the way um, and how to get some of those barriers out of the way. With the energy burden, is there someone to blame? <laughs> That's a tough question. Historic policy decisions have created racial and economic disparities, putting people in poverty. So people are in poverty because of that, and they stay in poverty because of policy decisions. You could look at redlining policies from the 1930s that shut out Black folks from building wealth through homeownership. And now we don't have enough investment in community infrastructure and services. Nobody's really getting a living wage. There's no affordable housing. So it's really, really difficult for people to get themselves out of poverty without those other social supports. And when you think about the energy industry, you also, in these communities, have fossil fuel infrastructure that's creating this other layer of burden around health and environmental impacts. So a family who is living in poverty may not be able to find affordable housing or is working three jobs. One person, a single mom, is working three jobs. They might also be dealing with the cost of health care because their children have asthma. I think that the utilities have a responsibility to make sure that we don't exacerbate those burdens by making sure that we're keeping energy rates really low. I will say that I don't know that folks realize just how conservation-focused people living in poverty are. I know from growing up myself, like, I can't tell you how many times I got yelled at for not turning off the lights in my room or leaving fans on because we were counting pennies to make sure that we could pay the bills. What happens in really serious situations or when people are really living on not enough, that it becomes less about conservation and more about deprivation. And so people deprive themselves of energy just so that they could keep the lights on, even though that sounds counterintuitive. The last thing people want to have to deal with is the electricity being cut off. You'll go without your prescriptions, you'll not pay for school lunch, you'll do all these other things before you go delinquent on your energy bill. So to bring the point home that a lot of times we talk about behavior and education, and that's not enough. The reality is people just don't have enough money and don't have efficient housing. How many people with an energy burden are renting, and how does that factor into the energy burden? About 53% of people with low incomes are living in rental or multifamily housing. 
What that means for us as advocates on clean energy and energy efficiency is that a lot of the existing energy and home repair services are for homeowners. Like I said before, a lot of people have been blocked out of homeownership. So we're missing a huge piece of the population. The challenge with energy efficiency for multifamily housing is that we have not found a clear solution to this idea of the split incentive, the landlord-tenant split incentive. Nobody really has the incentive to make investments in the building. And when the landlord has the incentive, often what we might find is that there's unforeseen consequences around displacement or around raising rents. And so we're contributing to gentrification unwillingly, unknowingly. That's a tough challenge. I think we have some ideas for how to make that work, but a lot of those things are big challenges to getting energy efficiency on the table. Squeaky clean. Let's talk about some of the long-term effects of the energy burden. The short-term effects can be crippling. They can be, like you said, the difference between someone being able to afford their prescription or not. Mm -hmm. What are some of the long-term effects of the energy burden? Unfortunately, those short-term effects are not really short-term. The ability to pay for prescriptions is a life-or-death problem. And we've seen stories like this in the healthcare debate. The inability for people to pay for their medical needs, to pay for other needs. They might be taking care of an elderly parent or they might have children that need health care. There's any number of things that people might need, but because there's just not enough money to go around and because people will use the money that they do have to make sure their lights stay on, we often see that they're making those kinds of decisions. And long term, that just means they never are able to save any money. The idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, pulling yourself out of poverty, that's very, very difficult. The long-term effects of energy burden are that people can't get out of poverty. They're living in unsafe conditions for most of their life, and that means long-term asthma, long-term medical complications. We think about them as short-term problems for folks who are middle-income or high-income, who are not living paycheck to paycheck and might be able to recover from economic shocks. But for folks living in poverty, that's just not the case. There isn't any recovery. Do you think that clean energy could start to be part of that recovery if there is to be a recovery? Yeah, I definitely think so. We know that we have to move to a clean energy economy. Utilities will say clean energy is expensive. It's going to cost people more. First of all, I don't think that's true. And second of all, the cost of climate change is going to be worse if we don't act now. People living in poverty are not only dealing with the economic burden of being in poverty, but also the vulnerabilities that come with being low income. It's really critical for us to build resilient infrastructure, to help people to recover from economic shock. And this intersection of energy and housing is really critical. If we can invest in safe and healthy housing for people, that will go a long way in terms of resilience. I think clean energy is part of the solution. It just can't be the only solution. What's the best case scenario for folks with a high energy burden? And what would you like to see in the next five to 10 years that could really start to be game changers for folks that can't afford prescriptions, folks that aren't making rent payments and are barely able to keep the lights on? We, we have to invest in energy efficiency and healthy housing. That is key. 
if we were to expand weatherization programs, I could see that going a long way in terms of helping people get into better, more stable economic conditions. I can see that being a pathway for energy efficiency jobs for people. I think it could be a way to revitalize local economies. That intersection is really huge and holds a lot of potential. When we think of the clean energy transition, we often forget about that because it's not as shiny as solar panels and wind turbines. But I think that's really key. And I think the other thing that is key to success or what we're working towards is building resilient communities overall. That means, again, safe and healthy housing. It means restoring natural wetlands. It means building up natural infrastructure so that we're better able to recover from climate shocks or weather events. And I think it's making sure that the clean energy economy, in whatever way it manifests, that it provides family-sustaining jobs for people locally, that it's not only for folks who can access solar, for example. We want the clean energy economy to be something that's bringing life back into communities. Bringing life back into the communities, I love it. (laughs) Life and light. (laughs) Life and light. You are, you are listening to the Squeaky, Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Podcast. Let's go ahead and start our conversation about diversity and clean energy. First, let me identify myself. I am a cisgender, straight, white male. And I just have to be honest in saying that when I walk into a room and clean energy is going to be discussed... I typically assume that the room is going to be predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly middle class. Jackie, what has your experience been like with diversity in clean energy? And would you mind identifying yourself? I consider myself Latina. I am Latina. I don't consider... I am Latina. (laughs) My family's Cuban. (laughs) Uh, Mom, uh, are you listening? (laughs) Yeah, don't listen to that, Mom. Sorry. I'm Cuban. (laughs) I'm first generation. I'm also cis, straight woman. I think I often pass as white, so sometimes I identify myself as ethnically ambiguous because often people are like, what are you? We don't really know. We're confused by your existence. My experience in the clean energy industry so far has, has been pretty aligned with what you just said. It's very white and male and middle class. In some respects, we're doing really well. I see a lot more women Even in the last two years, I've been in North Carolina working on these issues for the last five years, and even in the last two years, I've seen an increase in the number of women that I see speaking on panels and being asked to speak as experts on these issues, and that to me is really amazing. I think there's definitely room for us to grow in making sure that we have people of color representing the industry. Part of the challenge is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of mobility for people of color in terms of leadership positions. Often I'll see a solar company, for example, employ lots of people of color for their lowest paying jobs. But as you get higher and higher up the salary scale, it becomes wider and more male. Folks need to look at their organizations and their businesses. Do we have equitable internal policies? Do we have pathways for people of color to get to leadership positions? Are there internal biases that are preventing that from happening? Which often there is. There are lots of ways to get at those things. I'm not going to say all of them here, but the first step is looking at your organization and seeing 
what is actually happening here. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the point about panels because here at NCSEA we have a manal wanal task force, <laughs> which is to prevent totally male panels or totally white panels. So those are our, That's so we beautiful. we call we call white full all white panels wanals. We call all <laughs> men panels manals. So at NCSEA, it even sounds it sounds like you're saying like like whiny. It's like the beginning of whiny, which like <laughs> feels even more appropriate for me. Yeah, yeah, right. Wanal. <laughs> the yeah, wanal exactly. task force. Yeah, it's like a bunch of babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I went to a couple conferences last year and the year before. I think the year before. So it's, it's, what is it? What year is it? 2019. So this would be 2017. I went to a couple of state conferences on energy and some conferences on energy outside of the state. And every single one I was like, I literally have just been talked at by a bunch of white dudes in engineering terms that nobody relates to or understands for days. <laughs> and I think from that time to now, I've seen a little bit of a change in that. Um, I think more and more people are, are, are starting to really realize that there are experts of all kinds out there, but they're not being asked to do to, to like speak as experts on these issues. So, um, so that's a change I've seen, but, but obviously there's always more, there's always more work to do, especially if you know, you're not paying people enough to, <laughs> you're not paying people to be in leadership positions, then you're not going to find them there. Do you feel like you see yourself represented in the clean energy industry? In some respects, like I said, it's amazing to see more women in leadership positions and speaking on these issues in terms of people of color, in terms of Latinx people, less so. I think there's, again, lots of expertise out there. Folks just don't have the same kind of access or opportunities as other white people do. One thing, too, I'd like to just share is listen to the people of color in your organization. Often what I see is people of color in the bottom rungs of the organization, and all of them are saying, there's no pathway for me to get a promotion. I feel discriminated against. Even if it is in a harsh work environment, there are biases that are working against them in the organization to get that promotion. Or maybe they don't have a graduate degree and so they can't get that manager role even though they have years of experience managing people or whatever it might be. Listen to the people and validate the experiences of the people of color in your organization and work to adjust so that your organization is not only diverse, but it is actually an equitable place. Wow. Every listener can take that to heart and listen to the folks who are not often represented in companies that are clean energy. So I think that's Mm -hmm. really important. Exactly. And in progressive spaces, especially, we get stuck in this mind frame of, well, I'm progressive. I'm not racist. There's this fragility around the conversation that tends to happen. We need to address that because it harms us more than it helps us to assume that we are all sort of in it together and we're all these progressive advocates. What voices need to be elevated most in the clean energy industry? People of color and people living with low incomes have borne the brunt of the pollution and the negative effects of the fossil fuel industry. So I think it's really critical that we listen to those groups of people who are maybe faced with environmental injustice or who are just living in poverty and have really high electricity bills or high gas bills. We need to listen to what they're saying so that we can move forward in the clean energy economy, making sure that we are not leaving them behind again, that we are looking to them for leadership on these issues and 
that we support their prosperity in our industry. Okay, Jackie, what are you most excited about right now? (laughs) Well, next week I'm going to Los Angeles for the Energy Efficiency for All conference. All right. Which is going to be real fun. Cool. Excited to see. We do have a Energy Efficiency for All North Carolina coalition that we just sort of have started to grow. And so I'm excited to learn a bunch of stuff in L.A. and and hear about what other, other states are doing. Cool. Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah. You can find Jackie on Twitter at J-A-C-U-Q-I-E-A-Y-L. Let me try that again. (laughs) (laughs) You can find Jackie on Twitter at J-A-C-Q-U-I-E-A-Y-A-L-A. That's Jackie Ayala on Twitter. Jackie, besides you, who's the one person everyone listening on this show needs to go follow? Oh, God, on Twitter? Yeah. Okay, so confession is that I don't really look at Twitter except for... <laughs> I did, I, no, I do know that because <laughs> I was looking at your Twitter and feed. there's nothing and, there. And, and I was pretty quickly in, like, 2011. <laughs> yeah, there's... I really just go on there to lurk and look at Game of Thrones things. Like, that's oh my it gosh. right now. It's real bad. <laughs> uh, well, but I will, I will say that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is someone that you should follow because nice. she is really amazing. She has amazing things to say. Everybody should be listening to her. The youth are our future, et cetera. Cool. AOC, follow her on Twitter. Yes. Okay, well, Jackie, that brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the pod. You were an awesome very first guest, which is exciting. I feel so great about that. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn. Well, Jackie, thanks again for being on the show, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me. There you have it, folks, the second episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast, delivering the latest in clean energy directly to your ears. Got questions? Shoot me an email at benstockdale at energync.org. And I'd like to thank Green Tech Media's Energy Gang podcast for an awesome shout out on their last show. The Energy Gang is a huge inspiration for our show, so a big thank you to Katherine Hamilton for recommending the pod. Stay tuned for our next episode as we continue to explore the most pressing issues for North Carolina's clean energy economy.